Hey guys, this is Pastor Kyle here alongside Pastor Bailey. Grateful that you guys have tuned in to our podcast. We trust that what you're about to hear will be beneficial for your day, and we're grateful that you've stopped by to hear what the Lord is doing in Milledgeville. Appreciate you, man. As you're finding your way to Nahum chapter 3, a couple of questions for you this evening. As a Christian, when surveying the state of the evil in the world, does your blood pressure rise and simultaneously your hope seems to falter? Do you find yourself looking at the world, meagerly hoping for the best, but assuming the worst because this world after all is fallen, isn't it? How often, even in our little town of Milledgeville, do you seek to ignore the sirens, the obvious drug houses, the spiritual decay? That is, until you hear a gunshot ring out, gunshot ring out on your own street or someone approaches you downtown. Isn't it easy to become troubled just thinking about the evil in the world that could persecute us? Things like we discussed this morning, pastors being jailed in Canada or Believers being paraded to be burned at the stake like we saw in the 1500s. Isn't it easy to be troubled about these things? Are you thankful that you don't live in a a bigger city, perhaps where these are a little bit more prevalent? Or perhaps you're thankful you don't live during a period of time where being a Christian truly costs you something. I guess the question I'm, I'm seeking to ask this evening, is it painfully obvious that we as the church are fearful of the evil in the world. The evil in the world troubles us because we don't want its beliefs imposed upon us or our children, whether by school systems, social media, or political policies, or even parties. The evil in the world troubles us because its ideologies are constantly being pushed upon us with things like Adultery, abortion, LGBTQ affirmation, and critical race theory. But on the deepest level, I think, evil in the world troubles us because it may, in fact, bring persecution to our own front door. We fear the lack of comfort, being mocked, berated, belittled, or perhaps even one day imprisoned. Religiously, we fear our religious liberties are threatened because of Bills like the Equality Act that's on our very Congress floor as we speak. But is this the way that the church is called to respond to evil in the world? Are we called to respond to the troublesome truths of the world with fear and trepidation? Did Christ die for us, ransoming us and redeeming us to live out life, just riding out the storm, waiting to hide from evil until he comes back to claim us and bring us home. Far from it, my friends. Far from it. Tonight we will see just how God's justice bolsters courage despite even the most troubling of circumstances. Our sermon title this evening is All Who Hear the News, How God's Justice Bolsters Courage. This evening, we will consider three implications that arise from Nahum chapter 3. In the first place, Nahum's acclamation of God's justice. We will just look at the scripture and see Nahum acclaim, meaning approve of God's justice in these 18 verses. From there, we'll see scripture's adoration of God's justice. We're going to consider multiple scriptures. And finally our application of God's justice. What does it all mean to us? Tonight, Nahum 3 and the Council of Scripture will attest to this most relevant truth. When God's justice is acclaimed, adored, and applied, it will surely bolster courage. Father, I pray that that would be true of us as your church this evening. 
God, it's so easy to approach conversations about evil or trouble in the world and already be on pins and needles because we've been so acclimated to feeling uneasy when we talk about evil or trouble in the world. We can flip on the TV for a few seconds or we can thumb through social media and already feel the anxiety rise. But because your gospel is so great, it shines light even into the most anxious of places in the corners of our mind and heart. And because of that, Father, we pray that you would shine that light boldly and brightly, that we would see your justice and that it would be all the more beautiful to us, that we wouldn't leave here the same, downtrodden, pessimistic, with a negative outlook on the life that we live in light of your cross. So Holy Spirit, would you shape our hearts and minds already through the preaching of your word, all for your name and your glory's sake, we pray. Amen. If you will recall with me, the book of Nahum that we've seen over the past two weeks is a prophetic warning about the near future doom of Nineveh. Last week we saw this doom was the result of God's wrath towards sin and sinner. This evening we will consider what kindled God's wrath for Nineveh in the first place, and that is his justice. In chapter 3, Nahum acclaims he has an enthusiastic approval of God's justice in your notes there, you can see letter A, why does Nahum greatly acclaim the justice of God? Well, in the first place, God's justice will surely undo the pride of the wicked. That's what we will see. In this entirety of the chapter here, Nahum demonstrates how God will undo the pride of Assyria through three literary techniques. A woe oracle in verses 1 through 7, through taunts in 8 through 17, and a dirge in verses 18 through 19. Look with me at the first literary technique, a woe oracle, verses 1 through 7. If you're not familiar with what a woe oracle is, it's a proclamation of judgment. Uh, Christ himself proclaimed woes of the Pharisees in Matthew 23 for their hypocrisy, and we see this in the Old Testament. Read with me, God's word says, Woe to the bloody city, that's Assyria, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the will, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of the deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings, and peoples with their charms. What is Nahum saying here to Assyria? What is he saying? God will surely undo your pride. He makes an accusation against them in verse 1 that they are full of lies and plunder. We get to see as the text continues in verses 2 through 3 a depiction of Assyria's military might. These verses depict the great slaughter wreaked by the Assyrians. It's visceral, it's real, it's depictive. And in verse 4 is a depiction of their political prowess, their deadly charms who betrays nations. If you were to take time to go back to 2 Kings 18, you can read how the Assyrians came into Israel promising peace, but what they were really doing was getting an eye for how much plunder there was there. This woe oracle from Nahum is clear. God's justice in destroying Assyria is to be acclaimed, is to be approved of enthusiastically because it is in proportion to their sins. Despite the evil in the world today, having seemingly unendless military or political clout, even in their exercise of it against you, they're simply digging a pit for themselves. We get to read this in Psalm 103 in our prayer gathering, do we not, about the pit that the Lord pulled us from. Proverbs 26, 27 says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it themselves. While the pit, your enemies or the evil in the world may be digging a pit for you, it may very well be for your life 
It just ushers you out of the pit of this world into your father's arms, even if you were to fall into it. While all the while they fall into the bottomless pit of darkness and flames and abiding wrath. As we continue, verses 5 through 7 will depict the public shame Assyria deserved due to their evil. It's very much like the parade that we heard about this morning of faithful men being paraded through the streets as the Catholic Church paraded them about. We see a similar circumstance here in these three verses. Verse 5, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. He repeats his claim from last chapter in chapter 2. He says, And I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Visceral. Real. Nahum demonstrates here that God's justice will not be carried out in the middle of the night, but in broad daylight, in the public eye, so all can see. God's contempt, as we read in the passage, will be for them before the nations and other kingdoms. Why? Why is God's justice going to be displayed to everyone? As a means of confidence that God will not allow justice to go unrendered. God will not allow injustice to endure because their sins were public and a dread for all to see. So this spectacle treatment is a just recompense for their evil. God, in fact, too, for us even today, will undo the pride of any who seek to shame you as a child of God. Just as we had faithful brothers and sisters march through the streets to shame them before their own congregation, how fitting that we shared that this morning and we see this evening, an attempt to shame and what happens? Psalms are saying. The true elect are seen in their perseverance as they continue to walk forward into pain, knowing that God's justice will be had, if not in this life, in eternity, for sure. If that's the path you must tread yourself, take heart, for eternity waits for you. We move on from a woe oracle of God's justice into taunts. We see a historical taunt in verses 8 through 11. God says this, are you better than Thebes? He's speaking to Assyria here. That sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, and water her wall. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street for her honored men Lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. God here, through the prophet Nahum, is taunting past historical prowess. You see that Assyria conquered Thebes in 663. Despite their high walls, despite the ramparts that they had, despite all the allies that we got to see of Put and Cush in Libya. Basically, he's asking the question will it go better for you than Thebes? He's asking this of Assyria. Yet they went into exile. Their children were dashed into pieces, their strong men were carried off, and they drank. The wrath of God. How does this apply to us today? Surely, as we see, the wicked cannot stop God's justice despite their past success. Just because the wicked, the evil, are seemingly successful in the world today, powerful, wealthy, influence, their past success is no promise of future glory. 
So Christian, do not lose heart. The Lord is not forgetful in his justice. He will by no means pardon the guilty apart from Christ. Their time of power is short. Their oppression of the people of God will not endure. The wicked today will most assuredly drink of God's wrath as Assyria did, we saw in verse 11. But praise God that Christ drank down to the dregs the wrath of God do you. That all that remains for you as a child of God is not the wrath that this world can bear upon you. The wrath of God will bear upon them. You don't have a heavy load or a burden to carry to be troubled about the world because Christ's burden is easy. His yoke is light. He surely is calling you into the beautiful places. Verse 12 through 15, verses 12 through 15, we see a military taunt. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. The taunt here we see is a military taunt. Despite how strong Assyria was in their military might, God is saying, you will not be able to resist the attack of my justice. My justice will come despite how strong you are. We saw in verse 12, they'll be shaken like a fig tree. Have you ever shaken a tree and how easily the fruit just falls out? This is what God is describing their might as. Maybe just a stiff breeze will knock them over. Their military might is to be brought to nothing. Their military, we see, was weak as women in verse 13. Biblically, what we're seeing here is because there's might needed in battle and that the man is, by scripture standard, the stronger, more physical being that it was a wicked thing to do to have women in battle. How does this apply today? This is not a really uh, popular message, perhaps. But what can we take from it? That men are called to be men, and it is a wicked thing to send our women to the front lines to die for us. But that's the sermon for another day. God is saying in verse 14, although you won't be able to overcome this siege, you you can try. It's describing the process of fortifying walls, of draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, go into clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. He's saying, go ahead and try. But you will be devoured as crops when locusts pillage the land, even before the brick dries, we see in verse 15. The wicked cannot stop God's justice despite their military might. So do not fear evil Christian, even the mightiest of enemies. As we read in Psalm 103, are but dust. They're but dust and ashes to your sovereign God. If he wills, they will surely stop drawing breath. In 16 through 17, we see an economic taunt. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts. Settling on the fences in a day of cold, when the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. The taunt, your economic empire will fall. Your merchants, they will be dispersed, verse 16. Your princes and scribes as well, verse 17. The wicked cannot stop God's justice despite their economic riches. Verse 
Timothy 6.9 says this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Money is more often the source of problems, not solutions in God's economy. Don't be fearful of the evil that has seemingly endless resources. They too have to answer for how they steward those resources. Surely if they use them to proliferate or persecute God's justice, we'll see that they will fall. Sitting in the back of the room this evening, I was reading through Spurgeon's Mornings and Evenings, and he said this. He was speaking of the widow that had nothing but the uh, oil and the, the bread that kept continuously replenishing. Spurgeon said this, It's better to have God as your guardian than all of the Bank of England. It's better for you to have what little bit you have in Christ than for you to have the entire Fort Knox. There's no security in it. Therefore, there is no reason to fear those who do have it. Nahum closes with a dirge. If you're not familiar what that is, a dirge is a lament song for the dead. Remember, this has not come to pass yet. This would come to pass the destruction of Assyria 50 years later. Here's the dirge. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber, your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. The dirge, your destruction is so certain the song is already written. The destruction of the evil and the wicked is so certain the song is already written. What do we have to fear? Why was the Assyrians' death so certain? Because their shepherds and nobles slept. Verse 18. Verse 19, the wound was already mortal. They were already going to die. The death then would be good news to all the oppressed. Why? Why is God's justice acclaimed here? Like we said at the outset, why is it acclaimed this, this news? Why was it good news? Because God was returning upon them their unceasing evil as a means of encouragement to Israel. God's justice is to be acclaimed. This was to be a comfort to Israel. Remember back with me to week one, Pastor Brian reminded us that Nahum means literally comfort. God's just punishment of Nineveh was meant to be a comfort to Israel and therefore to us as well. How, you ask? How is God's justice on the wicked a comfort to us? How is God's justice something that we can even adore? In the second place here, we'll spend some time seeing scriptures, adoration of God's justice. How is it something we can adore? Letter A, what can you glean from scripture's adoration of God's justice? As you're taking notes, we'll see this. God's justice is a great encouragement when you find yourself deeply troubled by the presence of evil in the world. It's a great encouragement. Nahum was meant to be a comfort to the people of Israel because the wicked would not last. They were chafed, thrown into the air, the wind will carry away. And when you are looking around at the world and you read the news and your anxiety is rising, when you see those that are clearly apart from Christ prospering and you're wondering, when you just feel like the, the Christian life is just about holding on for dear life until you know, this thing is just going to go south in a hurry, look to God's justice as a means of encouragement. You may not know this, but you already do this. Flip with me, if you will, to Psalm 23. One of the most well-known psalms, this is why I, I can, I feel like rightly say that you do this, whether you realize this or not. You look to God's justice in the presence of your enemies. 
you've probably read this psalm hundreds, if not more times. Psalm 23, 4 through 5. This is why this is one of the most encouraging bits of scripture. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, does that feel like it describes you in this world? I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod is for the enemy, for the wolf, the one seeking to attack. The staff is to gently lead you. They comfort me. Catch this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The Christian life is not about getting away from your enemies. It's not about being afraid of them. It's about Christ's presence with you, even in the midst you can have peace. Flip with me to Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. Perhaps another passage that you've read in a time of troubled worry. Maybe when you look around at the world today and you have need of comfort. Maybe you've read these words, Isaiah 41, 11 through 16. We'll again see here a very great encouragement of God's justice being done towards you, his people, in this passage. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chafe. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord and the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. It's not that God is just close to you and comforting you. The reason why you fear not is because justice will be poured out on the wicked through you. You advance the kingdom in the world. You advance God's justice, Christ in you. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. That is a primary passage of Christ and what he did but it's the ministry that we walk into as well. It's a great encouragement that your enemies will be destroyed. We're talking about ethereal enemies. Who are these? It's any that oppose Christ. Anything that you are afraid of that uh, someone could come against you in persecution. It's ideologies, it's systems, it's thrones, it's rulers' dominions. It's a great encouragement to you. We've seen two places thus far. Flip with me one more time. Psalm 91. We can see scripture is overflowing with adoration for God's justice that he will not let the wicked go unpunished. Psalm 91, 1 through 10. One of the most beautiful chapters in all of scripture. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is hiding in Christ despite trouble in the world. When you're fearful, when you're doubting, when you feel like everything is rising up against you in this world. 
Verse 3, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Does that seem like a man who wrote this that is fearful? No. This is why we must, we must, we must remind ourselves of the proper view of the Christian found in God's word. The proper view is we don't shrink back in trepidation when the the waves and the billows of this world seem like they're going to crash in over us because we know the pestilence will not come near us. A thousand will fall at our right hand. Why not? Because of how great we are. Why can we be confident of this? Not because of something that we can do or will ever do, because of what Christ has already done. When he said it was finished on the cross, it was. The victory secured. We walk now, not in trepidation or fear, despite whatever may be. We walk in confidence. We walk in courage. When we see God's justice poured out for us on the wicked, it gives us courage. Yes, scriptures like Psalm 23 and 91 provide great encouragement when we find ourselves deeply troubled. Yet, there is a difference between you being encouraged and being courageous. There's a difference between you being encouraged and being courageous. I think we can easily read those verses and be encouraged and we can sit in our chairs this evening and feel like we have every reason to be encouraged because uh, God is for us who can be against us. We have every reason to be encouraged of, oh, I shouldn't be fearful. Yes, absolutely, praise God. But there is a big difference between being encouraged and being courageous. You can be encouraged in your seat, but if you're being courageous, you're getting out of your seat. You can be encouraged and do nothing about it. You can be encouraged in your heart and your mind and your hands do nothing. Have you ever wondered why your courage seems to waver, to flicker like a dimly lit candle, that one puff of breeze and it will blow it out? You've ever wondered why Boldness is not a word you would describe yourself with. Have you ever wondered these things? Surely there's a difference between being encouraged and being courageous. Let's see this in our application of God's justice to our life. Header 3.A, how does applying God's justice bolster your courage despite the presence of evil? In the first place, God's justice offers proper perspective. If you know me, that's nine out of ten times I'll start my applications with proper perspective. We got to start somewhere. Evildoers only exercise their power as so allowed by God. As so allowed by God. Acts 4, 27 through 28 says this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Let's talk for just a second here before we read verse 28. What is the most wicked, evil thing that has ever been done, ever? The murder of Christ. The most wicked thing ever. Acts continues by saying, together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Even the most wicked, evil thing that has ever taken place was by the sovereign hand of God. The wicked, the evil are on a leash. They're not free-flowing in this world. Satan is real. 
but he's defanged by the cross of Christ. If you see God's justice, it offers a proper perspective because you know that even if it feels like they're free-flowing, that they are still under the sovereign hand of God. How is there a difference there between being encouraged and courageous? Being encouraged just is a head knowledge of knowing that. But when you truly believe that, you're going to open your mouth. You will speak. You will go. You will not fear. It offers proper courage. In the second place, God's justice reminds you of your promised past. Your promised past. God's, God promises victory and thereby justice over enemies. What do I mean by this promised past? Again, maybe a passage that you've read multiple times in your life, because this is one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, Genesis twenty-two seventeen. It's God's covenant that he makes with Abraham. It says this, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. In the covenant that he makes with Abraham is a promise of victory over enemies. That victory may not always look like what we hope or expect it to look like, but you remember in a promised past that we in the new covenant, as we've been studying through Hebrews, is built off the old and the parts that are done away with Christ has already fulfilled, but the things that remain are the promises for the people of God. The promise that remains, that no enemy will overtake you because Christ has already defeated your greatest enemy, Satan, and all that remains is your flesh. And that too is being sanctified by the Spirit. So what do you have to fear? Third, God's justice reminds you of your present reality. Your present reality. God's justice through Christ has already secured the victory over evil. That is your present reality that you walk in. This is nothing new, just surveying the room and knowing who is here this evening. This is nothing new for you. But let me ask you a question. Do you walk that way? Do you evangelize that way? Do you love that way? Do you abide in Christ that way? 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reason why you don't have to be afraid of the world because you already have victory in Christ. This is why letter B is your eschatology matters. Your eschatology matters. If you're not familiar with what that word means, it's the, your beliefs or the study of the doctrine of the end times. If you've read scripture enough, you, you know that that's where we are currently, not just because of all the craziness going on in the world, but because Christ said so. The reason I want to delve into this just for a moment is because if you could relate and say you walk around uh, heavy laden or downtrodden or get anxious by looking at the world, I, I would ask you where you derive that from in scripture of this, this burdensome feeling, this fear, this anxiety, or this look at the end times like things are just going to go downhill. You see this pessimistic, fearful outlook of Christians really began with the Schofield Reference Bible in 1909. This is where we get the dispensationalist. Uh, if you don't know what that means, maybe you know Kirk Cameron left behind, people are going to disappear type thing. That worldview uh, tends to be really pessimistic. But what I'm here to say, why eschatology matters, because if you don't actually look at Scripture, what Scripture teaches, that Christ is king and reigning now, and that there's reason for hope because the victory is already secured, you're going to walk in a pessimistic mindset, uh, but you're going to miss out on something. I can promise you that how we have it as Christians now and even for the foreseeable future, even if things get worse, will not touch what the first century church went through. We're, we're not being tarred and feathered. We're not being crucified in droves outside of city gates. 
We're not being fed to lions as entertainment in coliseums. We're not being peeled alive and worn. Visceral, but true. Now, will persecution come? Yes, Christ promised in this world there'll be trouble. But what does he say? Take heart, for I have overcome. The reason I, I take time this evening for this pessimistic worldview, I believe, is robbing you, if you really ascribe to that, of courage in Christ, a view that arose 100 years ago, but for the first 1,900 years of the church, we knew nothing of that. We knew that Christ was victorious and therefore the church would be victorious continuously. You see, I, I think we've lost the sight of what it means that Christ is king and that we are heirs of his, that we are servants of his, that Christ mandated for us to advance the kingdom. We've lost sight that we not only have a king, but a good king. When we get to pledge our fealty, our loyalty to one that has made a decree that we are to follow, to go forward, to make disciples courageously, it very well will cost you something if you are courageous in Christ. It may cost you your comfort, your security, your peace. But don't forget that disobeying a king wouldn't just cost you your comfort, it would cost you your life. So what if it costs you your life to obey the call to advance the kingdom? If you disobey, it will still cost you your life, but eternally. Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It may cost you something. It may cost you your life, but Christ says in Matthew 10, 39, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's due time that the church began to remember who we are. Soldiers pressing forward with a victory already in hand. Small skirmishes, absolutely. But the battle was won on Calvary. Courage, take heart. Go forward is our call. How can we do this? From, from what motivation can we do this? What platform gives us the ability? What springs us forth into this? Let us see, since Christ overcame, through him you have and continually overcome. Christ overcame, John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome. So that means everything that you could be worried about today, Christ has already overcome. Don't worry with it. Don't, don't be fretful. Don't be fearful. Have already. You see, the first century church understood this. John understood this. The disciple that Jesus loved understood this when he penned 1 John 5, 4. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith in Christ, that Calvary meant something, not just for your eternity, but for your every single day. He has overcome. This is why we celebrate the resurrection, because in that, Christ overcome. He overcame. <coughs> you may be feeling like, well, that's great, that might be for eternity, he's overcome, my, my, my salvation is secure. Yes, I believe that victory, but I'm still not really convinced about these everyday skirmishes. What about these ideologies or things pressing in from all over this weight that I'm feeling? I bid you to call to mind Revelation 12, 11. Revelation 12, 11, I'll actually start in verse 10. It says this, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come, have come. 
For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. The blood of the lamb, Christ, and the word of your testimony that he, Christ crucified, is what spurns you forward every single day. Not even loving your life even unto death. We live in such a privileged, blessed, common grace era of the church. We do not understand this. But surely if the Lord sees so fit that we go through it, the only way that we can remember and we can persevere is through these very scriptures. But it's a continual process. Every single day, you love not your life even unto death. Christ says, if you desire to be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. The justice of God was on the very shoulders of Christ as he bore that cross. The justice of God poured out on Christ in your stead. That justice bids you to do something, to go, to be bold. Thus far, all of these are very encouraging things to hear, but point four, God's justice puts you on the offensive. It puts you on the offensive. You aren't overcome by evil, but overcome evil. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you not hear the action in that, that you are to overcome evil with good? You're not to be afraid of evil. You're not to shrink back, but because of who Christ is and he has already overcome, you now overcome. You're on the offensive. You're charging the battle lines. Letter B, you don't hide from darkness. You expose it Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. You have no reason to fear of darkness. Your job is to be light in the world. Can light hide itself as we read in the Sermon on the Mount? Surely not. You don't put a candlestick on a lampstand and put it under a, a cover where the light of the world we're called to go. That is who we are designed to be. Let her see, you don't run from battle, you dress for it. Ephesians 6, I'll start in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You don't run from a fight. You're not just putting on armor, hiding. No soldier ever put on armor saying, I hope that every arrow just misses me and I don't have to do anything else. I hope I don't have to swing this sword. You dress for battle like this little guy. It's a good reminder to us here in the pulpit that what we are doing is actively equipping you for the fight when we leave these doors. Not just to be encouraged, but to fight to go forward. Letter D, you tread on the power of the enemy. What do I mean by that? Luke 10, 19, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Proper understanding of that. Satan is the great serpent, and what Christ is saying here is all the powers of the enemy you will tread over. Yes, there's a natural fear that you may have of snakes and serpents and scorpions, but no such fear is there to be found in the Christian for the schemes of the enemy, the serpent himself. Why? Why all of this? Why go on the offensive? Because it is who Scripture describes you to be. Letter E, you are a conqueror through Christ. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You're following in the footsteps of Christ as a conqueror. 
Flip with me to Romans 8, 31. Again, yet another encouraging passage in Scripture, one well we may well be familiar with. Again, I ask you, why are they so familiar to you? Because we all intrinsically know this. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What shall we say to these things? Paul is speaking to the very things that we are talking about this evening, the things that trouble us in this world. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are guarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing, 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 no powers, no rulers, nothing. What must we do with this reminder? Because this is not new knowledge. What must we do with this reminder? Take courage knowing God's kingdom will advance. How? Through Christ in you as you share the news of his justice pouring out on Christ on the cross. Take courage knowing that godless ideologies will be torn down. How? Through Christ in you, destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take courage knowing that even if it costs you your life, you will be with him and in swift justice your God will surely avenge. Do not fear for what is moth to a flame. What are the evil compared to the all-consuming fire of your God? Take courage. You will never see the darkest day of Christendom. You will never see the darkest day of Christendom. Why? The darkest day in all Christianity was Good Friday. The day where there was seemingly no hope. No reason for courage, but friends, the tomb is empty and your father's love for you is full. The victory is already in hand for death has lost its sting and Christ is king. Therefore, live and proclaim the gospel as dying men and women to dying men and women. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen, amen, and amen. Father, thank you that you have given us a reason.